3: No bridge is necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Mankind believed in magic long before recorded human history. Magic's taken many forms and manifested in a variety of ways. Most lost to time. But at some point in human history, we developed the technology of writing... And it was inevitable that this would eventually be used to capture magic on paper. In the same way, we might capture instructions for building a cart or how to make beer. And if the words were magic and they were contained in the book, surely the book itself would be magic in the same way that a religious text might be assumed to be holy. Today on Monster Talk, we start our two-part look at grimoires as we continue our series
0: Talk.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Monster Talks, the science show about monsters. And in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the history of the grimoire in European magic. This is part of a series I'm doing on magic because magical thinking is such a big part of Western culture. And because it's most certainly still a widely held worldview. As a skeptical naturalist thinker, I'm inclined to think we evolved into magical thinking, but as a researcher into technology, it also has many parallels to the kind of shared research-based work of science. Yet it's missing some key pieces, which we'll get into in this interview. This is all leading to some really interesting characters, but you'll have to bear with me, as we'll be taking several episodes to get through this. I'll continue to get back to monsters in between, but the ties between magic and monsters is deep. I'm excited to have as our guest, Jerry Drake. He'll introduce himself in a moment. But as you'll hear, he's likely to be back because one of the interesting characters I want to talk about is Jack Parsons. Parsons is a fascinating character who ties together rocket science and the early history of the Jet Propulsion Lab with Aleister Crowley's sex magic religion, and even ties in with Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard. And of course, I first heard about it from John Keel, author of The Mothman Prophecies and promoter of ultra-terrestrials as an explanation for just about everything. So hang in there with me on this. It should be a fun ride. Okay it's time for some monster talk uh despite a tremendous amount of respect for you which i do have i don't have any kind of bio for you uh would you mind introducing yourself
1: absolutely uh, my name is jerry drake and i am a uh executive officer with the u.s department of state i've been with state for about nine years um this is sort of the third version of my career I spent about the first two thirds of my life as a research archivist at various agencies uh, down in Texas, Uh, worked for our general land office, worked for, I was a professor at Concordia University for a while, an administrator at University of Texas, but I've mostly been in the field of what I think you would call knowledge and information science. Um, My doctorate's in a field of adult education that focuses on uh, cognitive mechanisms of learning I did my dissertation on learning from the public space, um, and for about the last nine years, I've I've either been a part of or led um, one in one form or another an information management, info science program here at state. I've been two years in this job. Um, I run an IT shop, a record shop, a big archival program, a research program. Um, Uh, And it's a lot of fun. Um, I don't get the opportunity to self-promote or publish very much because of the nature of the job. You know, we have to clear anything we write, you know, even down to the blog level through our public affairs program. So that kind of, you know, limits the amount of time I can spend writing about ghosts and goblins and stuff. Because guess what? The State Department just doesn't like that. So I want to Would they?
0: Would they own it? Would they have well, the intellectual it's not property that they on own that?
1: it? It's it's you know we have a professional reputation and all that, and they they very they marry they marry much want to have a consolidated uh, message among their scholars, and I mean that's the way the government works. It's not academia, so mm-hmm. you know while we're at state, uh, that's the you know that's that's the price. I'm going to have a giant publication hole in my resume for the time that I've been here, but I get the opportunity to work on projects that I wouldn't get to work on in the private sector or in academia. So that's pretty neat when you can have your own computer lab and you know your own ability to kind of parse data how you want and and come up with new and innovative ways to do things that's that's pretty cool it is cool so yeah that's that's what i'm doing right now what i've been doing and we'll we'll probably keep on doing that until uh until it gets boring and, and I find a university gig uh, somewhere, so...
2: Are, are there any limitations to what we can talk about today, or or do you need to have this vetted in any way before we... Re-
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to say uh, I'm not representing the department, so I'm not going to talk about national security, national oh. intelligence in the current area, though I guess we're probably going to talk about Jack Parsons, but that's going to be... a You know, I know a lot of jo- about, about John Jack Whiteside Parsons, so we'll have a good time with that guy, but yeah... Probably we're not going to talk about Iraq or any of the current events stuff. Well,
2: I, I'm actually still doing research on Jack, and oh, so yeah? I was actually planning to do a whole episode on him. So maybe we'll uh, steer clear of Mr. Parsons. Sure. Uh, and we'll sure. rock mm-hmm. it through that topic on a different day. What? <laughs> uh, okay.
1: It's pretty stupid. Great.
2: <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe you can come back for that, because honestly, that is uh, a fascinating topic uh, I don't even know how to describe that exactly. It's the way it compartmentalizes within all these topics, but uh, uh, that sort of science and magic overlap is I find very interesting, and and, uh, and so that is kind of where I'm heading with some of this. I think
1: one of the things we'll probably talk about is the break between science and magic is only about 200 years old. You know, and and I mean prior to the Enlightenment, science and magic were the same thing, and Jack Parsons was a lot like Aleister Crowley, and that he never parsed the difference between the two. Um, And that's one of the things I find interesting about it. And then you find a lot of characters in government still, you know, people like Tom Slick and Jack Parsons and these guys who live in this kind of weird, shadowy world of legitimate research, government, usually the intelligence world, and then weirdo occultism and, and magic. And, I mean, it's a really strange thing. I mean, it's no mystery that, you know, the country was founded by Masons. Masonry is still a big deal in the government. I mean, you know, I, I just think that when people have a lot of interest in their very uh, renaissance and their thinking, you find, you know, these little pockets of people that are sort of like that. So that's why I've always been interested in Jack Parsons, because he and I sort of live in the same universe. So it's, it's, it's not surprising to, to find a guy like that.
2: Oh, and he—he, he, uh, it, it is interesting that we're kind of front-loading our tangents. Usually we kind of sp- spit off into them later. But- <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. I guess we, should, very we,
0: we should start at the very beginning. And, Jerry, we wanted to bring you on the show to talk about grimoires. Yes. And uh, I guess to begin with, uh, if we could have a little bit of a definition. What is a, a grimoire? Uh, the
1: the word grimoire is an interesting uh, word. It, it It's had a lot of definitions over the years. Originally, it was a French word, um, grammaire, with two M's, that referred to any kind of Latin text. If a book was in Latin, the old medieval French called it a grammaire. I'm gonna butcher a lot of pronunciations, but um, around the mid to late 18th century, when occultism began to sort of splinter off from legitimate scientific pursuit, the word in France began to connotate books of magic and specific kinds of books of magic that were sort of recipe books for how to actually do magic spells and occult rituals. Um, it entered the English language in a really, really famous book that came out in 1801 um, by a guy called Francis Barrett called the Magus, or the Magist, is the way we would pronounce it. And he's the person who introduces the word um, grimoire into the English language. And that 1801 p- publication of Barrett's book is kind of one of the prized possessions in my library. That first edition is pretty hard to find, but it's the book that we think of when we talk about sort of books of magic in English. Uh, Barrett took um, Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy and a whole bunch of the Solomonic manuscripts and a bunch of occult books that were popular at that time, translated them to English um, and sort of King James Bible style, and, and it really was one of the books that began the, the sort of the interest in the in occult practice in the, in the UK and then later in the United States. So that's where the word grimoire comes from. And when we're talking about grimoires, I think they fall under a universe of what I would call occult books. I mean, the word occult uh, means, it's from Latin, ocula, it means hidden or unseen or tangential. Um, and I think you would consider anything that was sort of cabalistic. Um, old books of ritual magic, old Gnostic texts, uh, the Bible itself would be sort of categorized as occult books, or books that contain hidden meaning and hidden knowledge. Grimoires specifically are, are like recipe books, and they're typically uh, either divided up into what we might call folk magic or natural magic texts. These are the sixth and seventh book of Moses, um, books like that. Uh, the long-lost friend that it's based on, all the Enochian magic books that are based on the book of Enoch, um, a lot of the Hellenistic books, and then what we might call uh, the leech books of the Norse and the Anglo-Saxons. Those are little cure books. Um, and then there's the uh, what they might call the diabolical grimoire. And those are not, when we think of the Necronomicon, I mean, that's what we're really talking about, right? We don't want to find the Necronomicon. When we think of these evil books of magic, um, I think that's what most people think of when they think of grimoire, but there's actually not that many of them. And the number of them that are quote-unquote legitimate, that were actually meant to be used as real magical texts, is probably very, very small. Uh, the most famous one and the closest book we'll ever get to the Necronomicon is a book called The Grand Grimoire, or The Red Dragon. And it was published in France um, in the, probably the early 19th century, but it claims to be a book based on a on a 14th or 15th century manuscript. And it is actually a diabolical grimoire. It gives you recipes on how to actually summon the devil and use the devil to do um, your business. Um, and it's a it's a pretty neat book. I have a later copy of it in the library. And the one time I tried to summon a demon myself, that's the book that I, I, I went to. Of course it didn't work, because the bad news about magic is it doesn't work.
2: <laughs> well, isn't that <laughs> well, usually one of the... Uh, uh... The problems, I think, when people try to use these texts, uh, discussions about maybe they don't have the right translation or, or maybe there's right. a slight mm-hmm. variant or something's obscured or hidden in code.
1: The mispronounced words. Yeah. yeah, you mispronounce the word and all that. Klatu, Murata, <laughs> I think that it might be helpful to sort of go over the history of, of these kind of books. I mean, the earliest magical texts go way back i mean we've discovered magical incantations in uh, as early as uh, in mesopotamia and ancient iraq persia Um, if you go to uh, bath in england um, some of the things that they've found in the waters there are rolled up uh, incantations and curses every roman site um, the mithraic temple in london which just got moved and reopened uh, they found curses there so i mean a tradition of what we call sympathetic magic—that is, actually trying to use an unseen force or a hidden force to to do uh, something else, to do something that's non-substantial, and to to create an effect from an unseen cause—I would argue probably goes back to the earliest days of of human culture. We we almost have to speculate, you know, when people anthropologists theorize, some do that maybe even cave drawings of the very ancient ancestors were attempts at sympathetic magic. And, and I might buy that uh, because uh, magic is a universal constant. Every culture has some tradition in in sympathetic magic. Now, out of sympathetic magic grows a tradition of what we might call ritual magic or what we would call today perhaps even chaos magic or what the people, the proponents of the, the faith word theory might call, uh, in religion might call, a secret or animal magnetism or just some attempt to think good thoughts and bring about good things or to change yourself um, that tradition still goes on and all that goes all the way back to the beginning um, the egyptians had a really rich tradition of magic that they called heka when alexander the great conquered egypt uh it was adopted into the Hellen- hellenistic uh, pre-christian gnosticism um so you find that religions like uh, Mithraism. Uh, have a really rich uh, magical component, what what little we know about it. And, of course, um, the Jewish peoples had a magical tradition that we call Kabbalah today um, that stems from the Mishnah, and it was adopted in Spain in the medieval period. Um, and so that what we might call Enochian magic, which is based on the Mishnah and the books of Enoch, uh, come from that Jewish uh, Kabbalistic tradition, uh, particularly a book called the Tractate Giddin, which some people might consider in itself to be a, a, a grimoire by those standards. So you, you know, what we know as magic today and what we know as ritual magic today comes out of a fusion of sort of Hellenistic Gnosticism, Arabic uh, magical tradition based on um, these ideas that King Solomon could manipulate jinn and demons, and then a Jewish version of that that formed the Kabbalah. And that all sort of gets mixed up in a big pot in the um, medieval period, during the scholastic period among the uh, the churchmen in Europe. and it and it's sort of spit out as this tradition of, of of ancient ritual belief. And that surprises a lot of people. In reality, um, what we know as grimoires today were actually originally com- composed by churchmen, by people, uh, laity in churches who could speak and read Latin and by um, these scholastic monks who were preserving ancient uh, tradition in the written form in their monasteries. And they were very, very careful to point out that most of the magic that was being done at that time period was an attempt to use uh, religious power, the Holy Spirit, the religious word, um, which is talked about a lot in the book of Genesis, as a way to manipulate natural forces. And as a, as a, as a result of that, it was considered appropriate to do so. It's only during the Renaissance, whenever um, this idea that magic might somehow be evil, and then during the Enlightenment, when we discover that it's actually uh, kind of not real, that um, it becomes tarred and feathered as being evil. Um, with the Inquisition, with the Reformation, and the Counter Reformation, the idea of churchmen doing magic um, kind of falls away, and these books become truly a cult, hidden and forbidden. And that's when they also start to become quite valuable. So in a nutshell, that's sort of a, a tour around where, you know, the written word of magic got formulated into what we call grimoire today.
2: That's really interesting to me. I, I, I think I'd mentioned a couple of episodes prior to this, as I was doing research on this, The uh, this whole discovery that these books, which all my life coming from a fundamentalist uh, evangelical background, um, were always considered, you know, diabolic. All of them were diabolic. They right. all evil. Always. And then to actually crack one open and take a look and see that, no, it's absolutely invoking the power of God and Jesus to control these demonic powers. You know, it's uh, it was a real surprise. Now, you mentioned specifically that you've got some that are considered to be di- diabolic in nature, like the Grand Grimoire. But uh, I, I just, it really, it, I guess, as you have pointed out already, it, it's... Uh, it's it's something that's transitioned over time, uh, and I guess in a lot of ways the way it's viewed has to do with the lens through which you're taking a view of it.
1: I think that's right, you know. And one of the things that I, you know, that always sort of bothered me about that is Jesus does magic, right? Like in Mark seven thirty one seven thirty seven, the one one of the few times he speaks Aramaic in the Bible is when he sticks his fingers in that dude's ears and shouts "Ephatha." let it be opened, and pulls his fingers out, and all of a sudden the deaf-mute can hear and speak. So, I mean, Simon Magus has a fight with Peter in the Acts, uh, where, and Simon does magic. Like, he's not a fake magician. He can actually do magic in the Bible. And Peter just points out, look, my magic is uh, better than yours. And there's a couple of uh, scholars who who would argue that um, the Simon cult was probably a competing... Uh, movement to the Jesus movement in the in the Middle East. So they had to have a way to sort of lay Simon to rest. So they have Peter, you know, the rock of Jesus have a fight with Simon Magus in the Acts to, to go, okay, you know, I know Simon's great and he can fix your broken leg or whatever, but he's not uh, imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, that's what that whole scene is about in the Acts, right? If you remember that from Sunday school is that Simon offers to pay Peter some some gold to to be invested with the Holy Spirit, and he says, "Nope, you know you might have a lot of power, but we're not. You can't do that because your your heart's not in the right place." So that's one of the things that I always thought was weird: is that uh, I mean, magic in the Bible is real, and it's not done just through sort of the Holy Spirit. And then in the Mishnah, and in the Quran, you know, magic is even more real. I mean, you know, old uh, rabbis do magic. Old. The prophets do magic. Uh, they have magic texts that they use. And one of the big, uh, I mean, I, I can't remember which book of the Mishnah it is. It might even be the Gedim, where uh, one of the prophets actually has a magic ring um, that he can use to, to move demons around. And then in the Quran, that gets, uh, that gets passed on to Solomon, where he has this sort of seal, which a lot of people say is the, the, the seal of the Jewish people now, Or he can wave his hand and command Jen, who we know as demons, to do his bidding. So, I mean, until very recently, um, magic was considered a legitimate part of the Christian experience. I really think it was probably the satanic panic in the 80s that I think all of us here are old enough to remember. I mean, I remember being able to play Dungeons and Dragons at church. And then not being able to, like, in the span of a week, did did you guys <laughs> have that have that experience? It was I,
2: I. It was never big in my hometown among my friends. Uh, so uh, it, it, the first time I encountered it was actually through the church, being told it was evil. And then la- gotcha. later, good friends had the books, and I read them. And I was like, "Well, it may be evil, but it's awesome." So <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah.
0: yeah well, my experience was different. I, I grew up in Australia, and sure. I was just a kid in the '80s, and. Uh, my family were not religious, so uh, it's, it's something I think I, I learned more about after everything had taken place.
2: So you, are well, was, upside down. Oh, go ahead. No, well, I was just gonna say that I, I was yeah. watching Stranger Things. Yeah. I keep thinking of Australia as the upside down. That's <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Yep. Upside down and backward. <laughs>
3: That's Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot.
0: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum
3: physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
1: Well, I mean, I so, was I was sort of thinking about that the other day. Like, you know, the way I got into this is that my – my my mom's family came from uh, northern Alabama, the 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 area around Muscle Shoals and Florence, and they were very much Tennessee River Valley people. I mean, some of my relatives up there still don't have electricity, and they practiced folk folk magic. I mean, my aunt Lorraine was a what we would call a conjuring person, and I mean, she had copies of things like the Long Lost Friend and the Sixth and Seventh Book of Moses. And I would go to her house and read this stuff, you know, and she would always do a little ritual when she made you a belt or a pair of shoes or uh, stuff like that. And I mean, they came from what we would, they call it, I guess, the Bible church movement, but we would call them charismatic Pentecost today. And that's sort of the church experience that you know I had growing up is we went to one of these Bible churches where kind of conjuring magic or folk magic or, you know, superstition was always sort of there and when the satanic panic hit they went out of their way to clean up their act like you know we had a gaming club in our church there in Louisville where i grew up where we could play dungeons and dragons and you know scrabble and that kind of stuff and nobody said anything about it and then all of a sudden you know away went any discussion of books of moses or hex and maestri or powwow magic or any of that stuff and then all of a sudden you know started to look a lot more like the modern what we would call a bible church today that saddleback church you know almost like you get a gym membership <laughs> when you go to church but you know the old charismatics really were, were steeped in this stuff. That's fascinating. So
0: uh, as regards the, the dissemination of this information and, and uh, the creation of these grimoires before the time of the, the printing press well, I'm just wondering: uh, were, were these? Uh, I'm assuming these books were handwritten. Were they single books? Were they replicated in any way? How how was this information disseminated?
1: So, the earliest what we would call grimoire, and and remember, we're sort of anachronistically applying that term. The earliest sort of magic books in the European tradition were were done in 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 um, the Arab world, and these were uh, around what we might call the the uh, I mean, Gnostic is the is the wrong word, but it might it might be what we might call pre-Islamic or sort of counter to Islamic Gnosticism. They had a they had a pre-Islamic um, religious movement that was based around sort of natural magic. The concept of genie or the jinn were very popular there, and that survival lasted into the Islamic time period. And as they adopted. Um, tenets of Judaism and Hellenism and then Zoroastrianism, or Zoroastrianism for your Nietzsche fans, uh, they they evolved a very rich magical tradition. And as those books got taken to places like Constantinople and Rome, and then later um, the German states, uh, they were swept up into the scholastic movement, and the um, monks in those uh, places preserved them. And a lot of that was taking place in Spain. And there's a reason why the the Inquisition begins in Spain because Spain is where, you know, a lot of Jewish capitalists and a lot of these uh, kind of magic traditions are going on. I mean, the Inquisition was originally an attempt to get Judaism out of Spain Um, and they were preserving specifically these Arabic magic texts and scientific texts. And I think it's really important to point out that again, before the enlightenment, magical research and scientific research went hand in hand. I mean, Newton wrote more about the Bible than he wrote about the principles of gravity or um, optics. And in fact, the entire back end of his career was spent doing, um, you know, an attempt to turn lead into gold and doing other kind of uh, uh, magical stuff. I think at one point he even tried to predict the end of the world based on uh, some Bible code that he had cooked up. He spent more of his life on that than he did on his quote-unquote legitimate scientific pursuits. And the same was true for people like Roger Bacon and some of those other folks. So, the original attempt to preserve these books um, was an attempt by European scholars to preserve Arabic knowledge. Um, there were a couple of books. The Gayat al Hakim is probably one of the most famous, which in the 13th century was translated into Latin uh, under the title The Picatrix. And it's one of the most famous early grimoires. Um, the word picatrix comes from a mistranslation of the word um, gratis which is uh, essentially what the uh, Arabic world called Hippocrates. And it was this idea that this sort of book of magic and science had been, had been written originally by Hippocrates. That's doubtful. Um, but books like the Picatrisks, the sworn book of Honorius, which was attributed to um, Pope Harnorius, uh, and some of those other texts were an attempt to preserve that earlier Arabic knowledge. What's interesting is that a lot of these things were already forgeries? In fact, the famous Roger Bacon, who was sort of the father of uh, modern science, at least in uh, the Western world, uh, recognized that these books were not authentic. He had enough knowledge of language and all of that to understand that, and he actually argued that illegitimate grimoires should be banned—that they, you know, books that were posing as ancient texts should not be allowed to be uh, disseminated because their knowledge was not legitimate. Uh, the Picatrix is interesting, though, because it's actually um, the first time the medieval understanding of the scientific method was was drafted, at least in popular form. And the way these books got around was the way medieval books got around before the invention of, of movable type, or I shouldn't say the invention, the, the migration of movable type into Europe, is that uh, churchmen in these um, scholastic environments, either laity or the actual monks who were doing book copying, were making copies of these uh, texts, translating them into Latin, or in some cases into the local language, and then uh, uh, preserving them inside uh, church libraries. And in Europe, we we're very, very lucky to still have a lot of those texts. In England, um, a lot of those church libraries were burned uh, by Henry VIII during the scourge. Uh, so our, our English translations of a lot of these books are not as rich. Uh, but we still have a lot of these things hanging around in Latin. Um, in fact, uh, any rare book library of size, even the library where I did my undergraduate, the University of Torth, Texas, has at least one you know, illuminated manuscript and probably at least one um, that's dedicated to magic. Uh, where I spent a lot of time at the University of Texas, they had a sizable, um, quote-unquote, occult cult library. Of course, the Library of Congress, where I spend a lot of time now digging around in this stuff, has a massive library of these of these texts so any any library worth its size even here in the US is going to have some of these books uh, when movable type comes to Europe uh, that's when the business quote unquote of occult books especially grimoires really starts to blow up uh, the earliest printed books we always associate printing with Gutenberg but that honor is a little bit dubious he was he was the guy who really uh, made it into a business and for whom Printing with movable type is most famous. Books that were printed in Europe before 1501 are called incunables, or the plural of that is incunabula. And that word comes from the Latin word for swaddling clothes. Imagine books being wrapped in fabric now instead of being scrolls or massive leather books. They're being printed cheaply, or at least cheaply by medieval standards, are sort of swaddled, swaddled paper. So that's where that word comes from. And some of the very first incunabula that were printed were or quote-unquote magical texts, Uh, right alongside the Gutenberg Bible. um, There's a book up in the Veil Collection at MIT. Uh, One of their earliest, and I believe it might be their earliest incunable, is a book on demonology and um, exorcism. It's from 1486. And this is exactly where you get your uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer-style woodcut books. You know, the Germans used woodcuts where they would cut an entire uh, page, of text instead of having movable type and then they would overlay that with paper and ink. That's where you get your, uh, you know, your stereotypical Hollywood m- magic book. Um, probably the most famous one of those is from 1656. Um, it's a, uh, the, t- let me do some quick Latin translation in my head. Uh, the translated title is uh, magic, the spirits and spiritual Apparations. And it's the first book to ever show a witch with a tall hat and her cauldron in a, in a woodcut. And by the Renaissance, these things, I don't know how seriously people were about actually owning them to practice magic, but if you had a library of size, if you were a wealthy person, a Sforza, or any kind of a prince, you had to have an occult library because it showed that you were a well-rounded person. So at that time, after the invention of movable types, woodcutting, and mass production of books, these things blow up. I mean, they're, they're starting to legitimately produce a lot more of them, and virtually all of them at that point—and I mean virtually all of them—fall into that category that Roger Bacon would have called sort of illegitimate um, books of magical texts. They didn't actually preserve ancient knowledge; they purported to preserve ancient knowledge. And you know, for a few, you know, a few Gelder here and there, you could get you, a, or a few Florins, you could get you a, a beautifully bound um, woodcut uh, magic book. Um, probably the most famous one from the time uh, was called the Grand Albert and the Petite Albert, which are um, bound up together. And uh, the Petite Albert is famous because it contains the first spell for the hand of glory. We all read Harry Potter, right? You know, uh, Malfoy's got a hand of glory. This is this dead hand, you know, that can be manipulated for magical purposes. And after that, you know, other books pop up. The Grand Grimoire itself shows up. The early 19th century, but throughout the 18th century, you have books like um, the Clavicula Solomonsis, Key of Solomon, um, the Black Pullet, the Grimoire Verum. These books just start popping up all over Europe, and they all purport to either be by some nef- nefarious pope, ancient scholar, you know, Jewish uh, patriarch, or King Solomon himself. And the printing press, like it did with everything, democratized magic books and also made them widely available. I keep
2: thinking about these in terms of being a technology. I, the, you, yeah. Th- that's, it's before the advent of uh, the scientific method. You you had really lots and lots of possible ideas and really no good filter for them, right? So except word right. of mouth, right? Wow. So I, I this comes up, like when I look back at uh, one of the things kind of, ancillary to this was I was doing research on werewolves and silver a few years back and
1: right, which was really, that was good stuff. Well, thank
2: you. And, but it, it, I'm still not done with that because I noticed that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, non proven, uh, power attributed to silver. And some of it goes back to historic texts like from Hippocrates or uh, from Galen and, they were like, well, you know, the ancients knew about this because they wrote about it in these medical books. But if you look at those medical books, they wrote about a lot of stuff, but there's no way to tell right. what's real and what's not real, what works and what doesn't. There's there's no there's no filter of efficacy. Um, and I, I just find that fascinating that, you know, by writing things down, we were able to preserve lots and lots of ideas from ancient times, but it didn't tell you whether they worked or not. <laughs> right. Kind of a hole in the system. I, mean,
1: <laughs> I I think it's really tough. Like, this is one of the things that I struggle with all the time. Like, I, I, it, you know, all, all of us here, I know this is going to sound silly, but all of us here know what the moon is, right? We know what the sun is. We know what the stars are. But 250 to 300 years ago, most people didn't. So uncertainty was more of a, a given in the past. You know, you had to live in a world... Five hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, where uncertainty was sort of the the, you know, the order of the day. You had to look at this thing in the sky every single day, which was completely responsible for your ability to eat. Not know what the hell it was, not know how it worked, not know its uh, mechanism of operation, and be satisfied with that. So the best you could do was make a guess, make up a story. You had no way to test any kind of a hypothesis because you didn't have optics. And even when we developed optics, the best we could do was look at very fuzzy images. I really think that the kind of certainty that we demand today is post-Pauperian scientific methodology is only available to us because um, we have the tools to interpret the things around us in a very meaningful manner. Uh, I think the only equivalent of that is whenever we start thinking about things like string theory, dark energy, the possibility that we're in a computer simulation, which some very interesting people, very rich people, think is a legitimate possibility and they're willing to throw money at it. Um, we just don't live in a world where the mundane is uncertain. So I think it's very difficult to have a scientific method like we have today. And, and I want to differentiate between the scientific method of, of Bacon versus Newton versus Popper. Um where you you come up with a hypothesis, you test it, and then you can theorize it in a very generalized way. That that wouldn't have had a lot of meaning to somebody who who didn't have an understanding of a lot of the mechanism of operation for stuff going on in their daily life. So, if you realize, hey man, you know, if I hit this rock with this rock, I get fire. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that. Well, if I stick this moss on my skin, I get better. If I stick this moss on my skin it turns black and withers off. You know, (laughs) I mean, that was their ability to test things. They didn't have an intellectual framework in in which to sort of portray that. So I, I think we have to realize that the human mind as it exists today is philosophically different from what it was when magic and the occult and legitimate... In what we would call legitimate intellectual pursuits were all kind of aligned.
2: Yeah, let me just throw out there I, I know we've talked about this to some extent, but just in case people are lost, we're talking about it's sure. Karl Popper and the idea that uh, scientific theory should be falsifiable. If you can't Correct. if you can't demonstrate that your theory is possibly wrong, then you really can't filter out whether or not it's true or not uh, from any other particular hypothesis, right? So that's correct. and it comes up a lot in in our show because there is a really widely believed idea that all theories are just as good as another, right? And so correct. what we kind of focus on is skeptics get a lot of uh, 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 bad press for being, you know, uh, Debbie Downers and you know naysayers or whatever. But what we're really asking about is can we figure out which is more plausible you know because all theories aren't really equally valid that's that's not actually true (laughs) so
1: (laughs) and that's exactly right i think however the caveat that i was at i would ask there was a point in human history where more outrageous theories were probably more equally likely to be true if if you hit a rock against a rock and it makes fire you don't understand the mechanism of operation under that. You don't have the tools to understand that. Then the idea of hitting a rock against a drawing of a mammoth on a wall uh, is just as valid a way, perhaps, to kill a mammoth as hitting a rock against a rock and making fire. I mean, we the concept of Popperian falsifiability can't exist in a world where you have so many unknown unknowns in, in that sort of fourth quadrant of the Johari window. You... We, you know, science is, I think the thing that people find frustrating about science is that it's it's self-correcting, but it's not self-simplifying, so, you know, we have to build this knowledge base over century after century after century, and as that's happening, the human mind is sort of evolving, and we get to a point in the Enlightenment when the mundane world is explainable to a point where we can go, okay, sympathetic magic, ritual magic, um, these things are not legitimate pursuits anymore. We, we know that electricity isn't magic. We know that uh, blood pumps through the heart and in some fashion oxygenates the brain. We know that we were even starting to know that we could communicate messages across the air. So they began to speculate things about ether and stuff like that. Uh, we began to get ideas about what the celestial bodies were. We knew they weren't gods and chariots and that kind of stuff. So there became a point where we knew enough for the concept of falsifiability to be a legitimate basis for intellectual pursuit. And I, I think that's perhaps where we start to date this branching of the spiritual movement, religion, spiritualism, away from what we would call science, and certainly what today we call scientific skepticism. Um, and it it doesn't put the occult out of business. That's, that's sort of the, the part that I wanted to get to. In fact, in the 19th century, this stuff... Balloons. I mean, if you, if you were to lay out in order the number of these sort of grimoires that were produced century to century, you would find that the bulk of the writing is the late 18th century, early 19th century. And I think most people um, sort of mistakenly believe that all this stuff comes from the very ancient past, even though it purports to, um, when in reality, a lot of what we know is magic today is very recent. And in fact, a lot of it dates to the, the latter half of the, the 19th century. It really begins in Europe with Barrett in about 1801, with the discovery of King Tutankhamun's Amun's uh, tomb. The Egyptian revival happens in the 1920s. You have a lot of interest in Egypt from Napoleon. The Brits in the 19th century, you have people like Aleister Crowley, and Madame Blavatsky running around looking to commune with the ancient masters. Uh, The Nakamati Library gets discovered in 1945. So you have a lot of interest in that time period, this sort of white hot heat, in looking back at uh, the spiritual world. And a lot of that begins here in the United States, um, in upstate New York, this area they call the Burned Over District, uh, where the sort of American occultists get interested in spiritualism, completely separate from these scientific and materialist uh, intellectual pursuits, and they create, you know, their own religious texts, their own books that we might call grimoire, and they they get interested in this stuff. The Masons get super interested in it. I was very privileged uh, to be the archivist that inventoried the uh, uh, Masonic Lodge, the Grand Lodge of Texas, back in 2007, and I mean, oh my God, they they have a library that's second to none. They at this time period in the 1800s, collected all these wonderful books uh, from all around the world to sort of add to their library. And you wouldn't even expect modern masons, you know, to have copies of medieval grimoires in their library, but that was something they were very interested in. So I, I think that's, I think when we sit down and talk about grimoire, magical text, and the occult, we're talking about a tradition that's really only about 150 to 200 years old,
2: yeah it was uh, one of the the little follow up idea was that the whole technology of this sort of uh popper what did you call it poparian that's like <laughs> poparian. i like that i I usually get caught up thinking about you know poppers as an appetizer when I think about it so I just, <laughs> 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 but got your <laughs> <Sniders> and <poppers. laughs> exactly but that whole uh idea uh people i think uh we sort of have this sort of uh snobbish sort of uh approach to look at us we're modern we've got uh, science right. and we hold up our cell phones mm-hmm. uh and they're like look mm-hmm. at us you know we're so you know clever and smart and at the same time uh we ignore the fact that actually we're incredibly superstitious like the m- yeah. magical thinking is mm-hmm. actually our our default mode uh i i am thinking about uh bruce hoods work with uh supernatural thinking uh, in children and some of his research and talking about things like uh, uh, the way we imbue items. Uh, it, one of his experiments deals with the the serial killer's coat. The idea that you wouldn't want to put on the coat that belonged to a serial killer. I mean, it's it a sweater. I don't want to ruin the experiment, but but the idea was that you know, like somehow it's tainted or imbued with like right. evil because it belonged to a serial killer. It's a sweater, you know, but. but but we we come up with like uh superstitious rituals for how we're going to keep our team winning and, and that sort of thing and that that's all that's all part of the same kind of thinking uh and it's actually really a lot harder to try to filter this way and uh and so even when you learn the technologies even when you know it it's still really hard i mean i know people who are absolutely rational in almost everything, but still get hung up on the number 13 or the idea that they've been cursed, that sort of thing. It's Because it's a really easy mode of thinking.
0: I saw this interesting uh, documentary last night. It was uh, called Jean Benet's Tricycle. And uh, it's a very strange background to this, but uh, there's a a fellow who stole uh, Jean Benet's Tricycle from her house as the family were moving out after the little girl's murder. And uh, so he... Basically, uh, would take this tricycle and, and he's done a lot of things with it. But uh, certainly, if he he would take it out to the streets or something and just have it sitting there, and and people would get on it and would ride it, and then he'd go up to them and say, "Do you know where this came from?" And um, and certainly, once people found out who had owned it, they were creeped out by it and leapt off it, and and um, it were it seemed to believe that it had this uh, some kind of supernatural powers, and um, maybe the uh, it, it was possessed by the spirit of the little girl somehow, um, her ghost or or something like that. And um, he took it to a number of psychics and had them try to do psychometry on it, which is kind of reading an object and trying to understand its history. And um, so, you know, it's a very interesting movie. It's a total aside to what we're talking about, but certainly fitting in with the theme of uh, people just assigning supernatural significance to
1: objects. And that's, you know, I... You know, we didn't talk about it at the beginning, but my primary hobby is sort of investigating these kind of mysteries. And I, again, you know, I don't really self-promote and I don't really write a lot because it's, it's just not what I'm doing right now. But I've, I've researched a lot of these cases and I may put together a case book someday. I think Joe Nickel calls himself the world's only, um, what is it, professional paranormal investigator. I think I'm the world's only consultant. Time. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm the world's only consulting paranormal investigator. If if you want somebody to come in that you know has the money and resources to look at your case, I'm happy to do it. I have an email address. Just shoot me an email, and I'm not going to write an article about it. So you're never going to be embarrassed. Uh, you know, I'm more interested in understanding this from the cognitive uh, sideline, and it's and it's just what I do for fun. So I collect occult, what I would call occult books and magic and ritual artifacts. I have probably got twenty five or thirty thousand books now and coupled three, four, five thousand artifacts. Um and people come to my house and they're like, you know, I don't know how you sleep in this house, man. I could never even fall asleep here. And I'm like, bro, it's 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 not real. So I mean, I sleep very well here because that Ouija board can't hurt me. It's it's made by uh, you know, Parker Brothers.
2: <laughs>
0: Monster Dog.
1: You've been listening to Monster Talk.
0: I'm Karen Stolzno.
2: And I'm Blake Smith. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters. You just heard part one of our two-part coverage on grimoires. We'll pick up next week for part two, and I hope you'll join us. We'll go back to regular monster episodes too, so if our look at magic's not your thing, stand by, and thanks for indulging me. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views and opinions expressed here, while totally awesome... Are not necessarily the views or opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. You can find more about the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine at their website, skeptic.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Urvas Bethad, doch yel diende. An al na Bethad, doh diende. An al na Bethad, doh yel diende. An al na Bethad, doh
0: diende.